we should challenge them perhaps that to go one step further, not being on that board or not taking up that seat would open up the ability for someone who may have lived experience and a different perspective to progress the types of projects that might make meaningful change. I'm Lee Matthews and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. We need to talk about power. In the doing good sector, the people who are in positions of power are those who make decisions about money and resources. Who gets it? How much? When? How? And why? In many cases, these decision makers are not representative of the communities who are meant to benefit from those decisions. They don't have lived experience, they don't share cultural backgrounds, and their understanding of the issue itself is often limited. In a time when diversity and inclusion are high on the agenda for many organisations, there's a serious need to examine power structures and how they impact the allocation of resources. To unpack this further, I invited Wei Yeo onto the podcast. Wei lived in Cambodia for five years, where he founded OIC Cambodia. Now back in Australia, he's the co-founder of UMBO, an initiative to improve access to services for children in rural and remote communities. UMBO is an online platform that connects them to allied health professionals for online therapy sessions. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Way. Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate you um, having me on the show. I'm excited to chat to you. But first off, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I would say that for me, doing good is more than just uh, helping someone. I think it's also questioning the status quo. Um, I like to think about any industry, if it's doing good or, you know, manufacturing cars or um, politics as it's like we're rowing a big boat. If you think of those old school boats, you know, with a chain gang and big, big boats with oars all sticking out on the side, some people are rowing forwards, a couple of people are rowing us backwards, but most people are just kind of coasting. And that's the way that I think about the sector of doing good. I don't want to just be one of the people coasting. I certainly don't want to be someone that's rowing us backwards and stopping progress. I really want to make sure that we're questioning what it means to do good and be right at the forefront of that. Do you think doing good is something that you express in every aspect of your life or is it something that you kind of silo into certain parts of your life? I think that ideally doing good should feel authentic. So for me, my number one value is authenticity. And what that means is that I try and be the same person with you, with um, a villager in Cambodia, with an MP, and just try and represent me in my my raw form. So I think it's really difficult for me to fake things and being good and, and doing good in the way that I define it hopefully comes out in all the different avenues of my life. Um, to use another example, when I was living in Cambodia, I was very deep into my work and at one stage of being there because I was so embroiled in the day-to-day business of running a non-profit and trying to lead it and and fundraise and do all the different things that were necessary, I actually forgot my niece's birthday and we're very close as a family. And to me, that was a really big point to recognise that as nice as it is to do good amongst community and to help people in other countries, if you can't do good and be good to people around you, it's all pointless. So um, it was a big wake-up call for me to try and get more work-life balance back into my life. And 
um, to do exactly what you just said, which is to do good in all the different ways that you can, not just in your work. Are doing good and being good the same thing? I don't think they're the same thing, no, because I think there are a lot of people that do good but aren't necessarily being good. And we talk about this at work quite a lot in the sense of what are we looking for when we talk about team members? We don't just want people to come in and be really good therapists. Um, So we work with uh, speech and occupational therapists. We don't want them to be good therapists. We don't want them to be good managers or good HR people, marketers. We actually want them fundamentally to be good people. Now, we're not saying they need to be good people when they come in. I mean, that would be nice, but we're going to try and help them to grow and to be the best version of themselves that's humanly possible so that they can not just be good at their job, but also make really good decisions. Wait, we've known each other a pretty long time now and have a shared history of both running not-for-profits in Cambodia and going on the journey from there. You founded OIC Cambodia back in, was it 2012? Uh, 2013, close enough. 2013. And you founded it for the 600,000 Cambodians with communication and swallowing disabilities. But over... A period of four years, you eventually handed over leadership to a Cambodian team. That's a pretty incredible achievement and one that many charity founders talk a lot about, but rarely achieve. How and why did you do it in such a short amount of time and why don't others? When we do this kind of work, like any other work, our egos tend to get tied in with what we do. So, When you meet someone at a barbecue, for example, and you work in this sector, I'm sure you've had this experience, Lee, when you say, oh, I did this work in Cambodia, I do this now. The first reaction you tend to get is something along the lines of, oh, you're such a great person. Or the other one is, oh, it must be so rewarding. Or, oh, it sounds like such a great cause. And who wouldn't want to hear that? And who wouldn't be affected by that and feel a slight stroking of the ego, of course? So... To answer the second question first, why do we find it really difficult to let go? I think a lot of it is wrapped up in our own sense of ego and self and that we feel like we need to live up to a title like charity founder and it's very difficult to disassociate with that. And I've found this personally and struggled a lot with it that when the charity did really well, my ego and my happiness was soaring. Then when the charity struggled, similarly, I was down the dumps and That's just not a very healthy way to be. It's very natural, I think. But what it showed to me was that my ego was too closely tied to it. So now one of the things that I've done just to be productive about it is to make sure that I have other passions, usually creative. So I play a lot of music. I write stand-up comedy and perform a little bit as well. To go to the the first question, why do I believe it's important to have local people leading these organisations? What's really funny about this question is that actually it should be more the other way around. Why is it unusual to us who work in the sector that this is the case? And and every time I talk about this with someone who has no background in development or charity, they just sort of say, oh, well, isn't that how it's always done? And it's actually no. It's really rare. Country directors typically are foreign. Founders of charities are typically foreign, and they do tend to stick around for a long time. For me, there are two reasons, moral and pragmatic. The first one, moral, we shouldn't be telling people in other countries what to do simply because we have more power and the ability to do so. And secondly, pragmatic, I don't understand Cambodia as well as someone locally uh, could. So for me, four years was a time period that was reasonable, probably slightly too early in retrospect, but it was something that was doable. I want to touch on a point you made earlier in that question around ego. 
I've been exploring it with some other colleagues and and guests, in fact, on the podcast about this idea of reputational gains that come with being a founder or or being a leader, particularly though in the in the nonprofit founding space and even more so in the overseas aid and development space where those power dynamics come into play much more, that it can be pretty difficult to step out of that role because as you you also touched on, your whole identity becomes wrapped up in being identified as a founder and as a good person. And the community around you is constantly propping that up And the people that you speak to are constantly praising you for it. So even if you are having some doubts about what you're doing or the the impact of it, it can be really hard to shift past that and try to find who you are if you're not that person, especially for really young founders. Yes, and I was really young at the time. You're right. And then you've got to throw in the other part of that mix, which is even you take out the doing good and the charity and the founding, being a foreigner from a Western country in a country like Cambodia, you're immediately, in inverted commas, special, right? And then there's this other really ironic thing, which is you have so much wealth, but it's not because you are wealthy. It's because everyone else is poor comparatively. So you can afford to live a lifestyle that in Western standards would be unattainable. And the double irony of that is that your whole job is to reduce poverty in essence and to reduce inequality, but that's the very thing that you're profiting from, the existence of that inequality and poverty. And that's why you can afford to have massages or get tuk-tuk drivers or eat out all the time and have a cleaner. And I think people do struggle a lot with that. That's why they struggle when they come back to Australia. Not sure if you felt that that same sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, people do talk about that, you know, and, and that the fact that, you just become kind of like everybody else and and it's a very different sort of lifestyle that you're used to living over there. But in my head, being in that position was never real. It was always just something temporary that I was going to enjoy at the time. I'm not lying. I really enjoyed having someone clean my house for me, but um, it wasn't going to last. Yeah. So you left OIC and you came back to Australia and you founded Umbo which is an initiative to improve access to services for children in rural and remote communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why you set it up in the first place? So my background is physiotherapy originally. And um, when I was in Cambodia, OIC starts the profession of speech therapy because there just are none in that country. Now, I'll say from the beginning, I never set out to start anything, but it became really clear to me that this was something that was so common sense that many people had raised as an issue, but no one had really done anything about. And then, as, as you mentioned, after I finished OIC, I came back to Australia. And what I saw was something equally shocking, which was this wait time around access to services in rural communities, as you would know, of course, Lee, living in one, that is unacceptable, really, for a, such a wealthy nation. People are waiting up to 18 months to get very basic services. And You think about the example of a four-year-old child who is picked up in preschool as having some kind of communication difficulty. That's when they typically are. If that child waits 18 months, he or she could be six by the time they're picked up by a therapist and seen. By the time that they get some kind of improvement from therapy, they could be seven. Already, they're deep into their schooling years and they're so far behind. And the one statistic that really 
sings out for me is that up to 60% or more of juvenile offenders have some kind of communication difficulty. And so what we're doing with these sort of kids is we're setting them up for failure by not giving them access to therapy early. And so therefore, UMBO just uh, satisfies a very simple problem, which is that the supply of therapists is not in the geographical location as to where the demand is. So we match the supply and demand online and all that therapy happens earlier. Hopefully, the goal is to cut 18 months of wait time down to one week. Can you do that for paediatricians too? (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) Yeah. No, it it is a very real issue. The wait time when you don't live in a big city is enormous to access, you know, paediatric support and then also going on to services. And I'm guessing, I mean, your your experience would be that just to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I assume, and let me know if I'm wrong, but a lot of people in communities like yours, they just get used to waiting. That becomes the norm. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly do relate to what you're saying about, you know, if if something gets picked up and you have to wait, you know, six months to see a paediatrician and then it's not the right paediatrician or you have a bad experience, so then you have to find another one and wait another six months. A year is a really long time in a child's life and f- particularly for an issue not to being being addressed or, or, you know, even assessed properly. And then you have to wait for access to services. And just on a personal note, I called around to access actually a speech pathologist and um, I was told that their books were closed for 18 months, you know, and that's not going through a public system, that's going through a private system. So, yeah, you are solving a very, very real problem. And and I think it is unacceptable that in a country like Australia that, you know, a child is waiting 18 months to get support. And that must be so disempowering as a parent, you know, when you know that there is something going on with your child, you don't want to have to wait. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of we're digressing a little bit here, but it is difficult being a parent, you know, to, to also know this is something that I can't actually help with. I am waiting for access to professionals and I want that, but I can't actually get it. What's different about running a social enterprise to running a charity? They're very different. They both deal with helping, but the the nature of a social enterprise, meaning that you have shareholders as opposed to members and members don't personally profit from um, the financial rise or fall of the company. And that social enterprises take on investment generally instead of uh, donations. And of course, with a social enterprise, you need to have a business that makes sense and makes profit and can run by itself. A lot of social enterprises are propped up by external money like grants and so on. But ideally, you don't want to have to do that. That's the whole point. So it, how that translates day to day, I think there's a, a much stronger focus on the customer. I really think that's it, which is ironic, right? Because there should be that sort of focus on the customer in a nonprofit. But Unfortunately, nonprofits tend to, by the nature of them, focus on the donor and what the donors actually want. So we get that dynamic and power imbalance wrong right from the outset. But a social enterprise, you don't really have a, a donor per se. The the customer is the is the king, is the queen, is the center of everything that you do. So if what you do doesn't work for that customer, then um, you're going to struggle. I think the other key difference is, at least in the early stages, your agility around making decisions is much greater as a social enterprise, which is why, to be honest, Umbo is a social enterprise. And at that point, I couldn't have imagined starting another charity and having all the restrictions around what you can and cannot spend money on, all the reporting. 
that we had to do around typical charities because you can make decisions that make sense to you and do them quickly. And wow, what a refreshing way to run an enterprise. Um, I think on balance, we need social enterprises and we need charities too. So my feeling is that I don't believe one is better than the other. I think we actually need both. Um, charities solve a very specific problem where you can't have a business solution to solve this social issue. But I do think social enterprises are really valuable to replace run-of-the-mill businesses that otherwise don't contribute much to society. Do you think your background running a charity actually places you uh, in a position of better understanding about you know, how to effectively deliver services to people who are the the core, you know, the core beneficiary of what you're doing. I, I certainly think it has helped and clearly starting something and understanding small teams and leadership and how they grow has been beneficial. I remember reading recently that book, uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. He actually produced a um, addendum to it uh, for social enterprises and for charities. And one of the things he said, which was really interesting, was that for nonprofit leaders, they have to be able to run something with no resources. So they, they have to get people on board and, and appeal to their emotion and passion and somehow maintain that interest. And his comment was that historically, it was people coming from the for-profit sector and moving to nonprofit to offer their expertise and sit on boards and maybe run those organisations. But his belief is that in the future, it'll go the other way, or at least it should go the other way. So I thought that was really interesting that, you know, as a nonprofit founder working in the social enterprise space, a lot of people would say, and they'd be right, they would say, oh, you don't have the commercial nuance and, and knowledge that you need to have as compared to your peers. But as you pointed out, Lee, I think one of the things that social, sorry, that nonprofit founders do know really well is a deep understanding of what people actually need, or at least how to look for that. And then secondly, how to stretch a dollar. Nonprofit founders can stretch money very far. <laughs> and I mean, whilst that's a good skill to have, we wish it wasn't the case. Yeah, I think it can be to the detriment. So I, I have uh, two other co-founders with Umbo. We mostly come from nonprofit backgrounds. And I think it is an Achilles heel for us that we don't spend enough and we don't have a spender's mindset. And uh, that's a good thing and a bad thing, but it can be quite limiting. I want to pick up on something you said earlier about how uh, in the in the charity sector, the, the donors hold the power. And I, I want to have a, a, a deeper conversation about power, specifically about power dynamics in the doing good sector. You wrote an article recently in Pro Bono Australia where you talk about diversity and exclusion, not inclusion. And I quote, the problem with racism and exclusion in Australia is that it is like an invisible force field. You're not 100% sure that it's there. You can't often see or point to it, but you're pretty sure that it's preventing you from getting to where you want to go. It was a huge shock for me coming back to Australia, I'll say, and um, I'm not sure if you had the same experience, but in the sector of doing good in Australia to see the lack of diversity. And I will say I'm particularly primed, obviously, because of my background to view things from a cultural diversity lens. But while we're doing a lot of work in gender diversity, there are obviously so many other forms of diversity, including LGBTQI and age and socioeconomic and disability that we haven't even scratched the surface of. I think in Australia, we tend to do things in diversity one by one. And it's sort of like the gender one is being addressed right now. Sure, we've got a long way to go. There are some statistics about funding, for example, globally, 
3% of venture capitalist funding goes to women globally, 3%. Yeah, I saw that. Incredible statistics. So we've got a long way to go. But my point is that we should be addressing all of these forms of diversity at the same time. And I think with the business of doing good or the sector of doing good, if we don't address it, there are some real challenges there, There's some real problems. And one of them is that the people who are in positions of power, be they board members or managers or founders like myself, we don't represent community and we don't represent the communities that we work with. How can we possibly try to understand them if we don't have those sort of voices? And the second thing is what I noted in the article, which is, in my opinion, true change occurs when you disrupt the system. And often that's, that happens when you displace yourself, when you cede power, C-E-D-E, when you give away your power, give up your seat at the table. So I'll use a very simple example that I didn't use in this article. There's another bit of research that looked into, you know, that moment when you're at a conference and then they throw open the questions to the audience. They say, what, would you like to ask the panel questions or ask me a question as a speaker? They looked at if the first person to ask a question was a man, um, what happened to the remaining question askers? Um, and then what happened if the first person was a woman? And what they found was that if the first question asker was female, women were two to three times more likely to ask questions after that. If the first one was a man, women felt maybe excluded, you know, possibly unconsciously or subconsciously excluded, and they didn't ask questions. So very simple thing that I can do and other men can do is just shut your mouth for a bit. Um, I, this is very, I struggle with this one because I'm a really inquisitive and question asking person. So I always want to shoot my hand up and ask the first question. But through a bit of practice, I've decided to sit on my hands for a bit and let um, let someone else have a go first. And then I might chime in later. So to me, that's um, true power is knowing when not to wield it. And that's a very simple example. Yeah. So just unpacking a little bit more detail of what you write around kind of this idea of symptom addressing. So without making that meaningful structural change that we're really just looking at tokenism by addressing the symptoms. And I think when we spoke the other day, you talked about an example of um, a board, a philanthropic board um, that was, you know, 100% white, had no lived experience of the issue that they were contemplating or being asked to fund. And I think you said when challenged by that, couldn't see a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really difficult to give up your seat, you know, and so a lot of these boards occur because of networks of friends, some of them, of course, of family, which is even more challenging, I would imagine, if it was my family's wealth, of course, I would want to be in charge and have some say over where that money is directed in a foundation sense. But um, I, I think a lot of our work risks being symptom addressing, unless we actually change who is sitting at the table, because it doesn't change power dynamics. And this is something I talk about quite a lot, particularly when I teach at uni, is for people that work in development to really understand their innate power and understand the power dynamics of the communities in which they, they work in. And in that example that you talked about, it is very easy, I think, for someone to sit on a board and to do really good work. And of course, we should not criticize people for that work in and of itself. We should challenge them perhaps that to go one step further, not being on that board or not taking up that seat would open up the ability for someone who may have lived experience and a different perspective 
to progress the types of projects that might make meaningful change. To use another example that's very simple is the mail-only panels, the manuals, I believe they're called. Uh, so manuals are something that shouldn't really exist in 2020. It's not difficult. You know, I've said no uh, a couple of times. I actually don't get asked that often. So uh, when I do, and it's happened before, I have said no. And at the end of the day, did it change my life? No, of course not. Could it possibly have changed someone else's life? Maybe, if they haven't really been in a position where they've been asked. And I think that's about being able to cope with the discomfort of giving up your seat and, and I guess the fear of completely losing your seat. A lot of this does come back to ego because it feels nice to be asked. Imagine if you are you know, a CEO of a corporate and your friend who's another CEO asks you to sit on a board uh, along with a whole bunch of other people that are all fairly similar in terms of background. Of course, your ego is going to feel very stroked by that move. And um, that comes back to what I said before around, well, we can't just tie all our entire ego around our work. There's got to be other things, you know. So in your life, it can be your children. In my life, it can be um, music or stand-up comedy or whatever it is. But there's got to be something else. I mean, that's one answer. But what's your advice for dealing with the discomfort of knowing that you should be giving up your seat, but the fear of what will happen if you do? I think it's funny that, yeah, it's interesting you use the word fear because I do feel like a lot of this does come back to FOMO, fear of missing out. FOMO for me is a modern day recipe for disaster. It really is a modern day phenomenon. I can't really imagine that if you think about 50 to 100 years ago, FOMO as a concept existed because people didn't have that much choice for alternate paths of their lives, right? It was, you think about that example, people, you know, the surname Smith, my dad's a blacksmith, I'm a blacksmith. It's actually that simple. It's predestined. So I do think that a lot of it comes back to being able to lower expectations and maybe even standards about what my life is about and just say that if I don't do this thing, I might possibly miss out on something else, but I do have the opportunity to do another thing. Now, I can't quantifiably say which of the two things are better, option A or option B, but all I know is at this point, I'm going to choose option B because that's probably good enough. I want to talk about leadership. You've been in leadership roles in, in many different spaces. And I think for me, I, I also have, and I'm quite interested in this concept of leadership and how it evolves over time and how we think of ourselves as leaders or how other people think of us as that. But what does the word leadership mean to you? I tie the word leadership to another word that I use quite a bit and it's in my TEDx talk, and that's the word redundant. So I think leadership to me and redundancy as a concept go hand in hand. And what it means is that as a leader, my role is to make myself less and less useful every day, not more and more useful. And we've all seen those organisations, of course, where the success of the organisation is very much tied to the charisma of the leader. And once they leave or if, they've, if they're sick for a while, everything falls over. So on a practical level, what does that mean in an organisation? It means growing other leaders, um, encouraging them, coaching them, listening to them, influencing them to become better leaders, not better followers. It means setting up the right kind of structures as well so that, you know, if I'm hit by a car tomorrow, it doesn't go belly up. So it's not about what's in my head or what comes out of my mouth. It's what we actually set as structures and policies and procedures, all that boring stuff, but super important. And I think it's encouraging a similar mindset amongst your team members as well, but also a, a mindset where they're able to tell you 
when you give you the right sort of feedback that you don't really want to hear, but you probably need. So being vulnerable and open with them and, and open to the possibility that you don't know everything. When we spoke in preparation for this call, you talked about um, the measurement of success around what is achieved now versus the legacy that is left behind in leadership. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about because often, and I'm talking more about probably the the, the private sector now, but often there's so much focus on what the leader is doing whilst they are there and then they leave and the new leader comes in and then there's a focus on what they're doing. And there's really not much reflection, at least publicly, on the legacy that's been left. It's so problematic and it's so tied to, as a society, where we're going in the sense of everything being very short term. So companies have to report quarterly. There is some really good examples of companies like General Electric is one where a very influential leader, Jack Welch, when he left his tenure, things started to go a bit belly up. And what's more important to me, uh, a time period where I'm the leader for, let's say, five to 20 years, or the entire eternity of the lifespan of this organization or company, whatever that is. Obviously, the longer thing is more important. And then when we talk about countries, we talk about nonprofits, it really should be the same process. So I think the challenge is for us, how do we encourage our measurement of success to be more than just what happens at that time, as you as you mentioned, Lee, but how do we measure success beyond the lifespan of this leader, beyond the time that they're in charge? That's a very challenging thing to do, but I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, our culture of individualism and egos tend to perhaps drive this rather than this idea of, you know, our collective legacy as leaders leading an institution or an organisation over time. I think that's a really good reflection. And, you know, we've both spent time in Cambodia and in Eastern cultures and, and my, my heritage is, of course, Chinese. So I think in Eastern cultures, there is a much greater sense of where you fit into the big picture. Uh, I remember reading the study where they were talking about a fish tank. This is a really interesting one. And there was a whole bunch of fish and then there was one very brightly coloured fish. And they asked people from East and West backgrounds, I can't remember exactly which countries, to look at it and what they noticed. And the people that from Western countries noticed this one colourful fish floating around and swimming around. And the people from Eastern countries noticed everything else, the context in which this one fish um, swam. <laughs> so I think that's... Um, not making a value judgment on which is better, but it, it certainly has its pros and cons. But I think the value of, you know, people like you that have spent time in the East and come from the West and myself and come from the East and spent time in the West and the East, you know, sort of very <laughs> convoluted and mixed background, we get to see both and we can integrate both of those concepts into our day-to-day -day life and our concepts of leadership. And I do think there is a value in that that is perhaps not quite, appreciated by both kind of both sides of the coin yet you know like I, I think it's coming to the fore a lot more and that fits into that space where you know the the not-for-profit the international development and the business sector kind of meet you know the the and I guess it's the purpose space yeah and I guess that ties into what you were saying about how the balance of, of who gets to sit in the powerful positions on the boards of not-for-profits now are the people from the business sector, but actually 
what businesses need is people with those different experiences and different perspectives. And in that um, article that you mentioned, I talked about one particular video, which is just illustrative of so many things. But uh, it was uh, two guys, um, I'm not sure what language they were speaking, but they were African, and they were looking at a soap dispenser in a public bathroom. And when they put their hand underneath this infrared light that dispenses the soap, no soap would come out. Then they put a white napkin, of course, on top of the hand, put it underneath, immediately soap comes out. So this is so illustrative of the problems that happen when you don't have people of different backgrounds involved in the design process or in positions of power to tell you that that won't work. I'm just going to draw a few assumptions that because the um, they were speaking in African languages, maybe the video was shot in Africa too. So that would be even more ironic that no one could use it really. It's just mind-blowing. <laughs> the majority of people couldn't use it. Yeah. Would I be wrong to assume that the technology that is allowing the sensor to go off and disperse soap mm-hmm. is actually only programmed to read a white hand? I think that would be the assumption because it's light infrared, so it talks about the absorption of light into the hand wow. and it's more for fair skin. So that, that's one very good you know, uh, visual illustration of the problem that occurs. But yeah, if we don't, and, and that's why diversity is not just a checkbox, you know, it really is, are we basing our ideas in a, some, uh, our concepts on lived experience or are we basing it on a whole set of assumptions that are confirmed by our other people in our circles that are like us? And unfortunately now, of course, with social media and so on, that we tend to live in smaller echo chambers. I think they're probably bigger echo chambers, but they're more siloed echo chambers than we have previously. So until we're actually challenged by people that come from different backgrounds, um, we're all going to think the same. From a business point of view, that makes life really easy because you make decisions quickly. But the question is, are they the right decisions? I think that's a big question. Yeah, and is quick the best way? It's a good question. I actually spoke to someone recently who works very closely with startups. And he said something very interesting to me, which is we talk at the moment about this idea of 10 times growth in startups. And we want everyone to be a unicorn. We want this huge amount of growth. Is that what we should be telling people that we want from them? Because if we do that, that's fine, but it means that we're going to create companies like Facebook. And that's pretty much it. And he was saying that not in a complimentary sense of Facebook. So he said, "Do, do we really need another Facebook in our world or do we need companies that actually add value to what we're doing and therefore maybe don't need to grow 10 times every year yeah it's a good point and especially i think the application of that that metric of 10 times growth for a social enterprise or even for an impact investment opportunity just it's not realistic in terms of you know achieving the kind of structural change that we're talking about here there's got to be a better model. There's got to be a better way and it, and it can't be a one size fits all. And I think that we need to be patient as well because to create structural change, that can take years and years to work out how to do it. I will say with Umbo, we haven't worked it out yet. We don't know how we are really going beyond symptom addressing. We don't want to be just addressing symptoms, but we we haven't quite worked out how we are addressing rural urban inequality and changing that entire system. That's a big ask for a small social enterprise to do, but we need a bit of time to get there and um, a bit of patience. Well, and as with any kind of systemic change, you can't do it alone. Umbo is not 
the one that's going to do this completely in a siloed way, you have to interact with government. You have to interact with service providers. You know, you have to interact with parents and children themselves. And I think that that's the difference there between a a straight up business model where it's like, no, we're just going and we're doing it and we're going to disrupt it and we're going to change everything. I want to ask a question on this the, the term diversity and inclusion. I spoke to a guest a while back, I think it was in season two or three, um, John Cornejo, and he's from a group called Charity So White. And he talked about, you know, the, this term of diversity and inclusion not being the right way to talk about it because it can be reductive and organizations can take it on and put a quota in place or do a a diversity and inclusion training for their staff and then tick a box and think that they've done their work. When actually we are talking about structural change, we're talking about behavior change, attitude change over a long period of time. Do you think that's a valid point? Yeah, absolutely. I think like a lot of things, they can become quite passe and quite tick box. Um, It's a very valid point. And the challenge is, unfortunately, that every time we come up with a good phrase, it becomes like that very quickly. And then we've got to think of something else to replace it. But I definitely empathise with with what he's saying. And, And how do we get past that? Well, I don't have a silver bullet, but I think the first thing to do is to have a common understanding of what it means. So that means that regardless of what word or terminology we use, we all understand what it is, and most importantly, why it's important. I think that's really, really valid that we actually understand, you know, again, this is not a tick box exercise. It's something that is going to be game-changing and life-changing for a lot of people if we get it right. Wei, what do you find most rewarding about your work? And then conversely, what is the most challenging? They're probably the same answer. That's very neat. Uh, I'm going to give the same answer to both because everything in life that is rewarding is challenging and every strength is a weakness, etc. So I think for me, as I said at the beginning, what I'm really interested in is seeing if we can shift this notion of what it means to help. I would like us to be progressive and challenge ourselves as to what really helping other people and doing good really is all about. And that's why I think you know, what you're doing, Lee, is really amazing and so valuable because the more uncomfortable conversations and provocative conversations we can have, the better. That's where it starts. That's something that really makes me feel very proud about the work that we do, that it's not bland, that it's not just same old charity. And it's also challenging because it means you've got to shift people's mindsets. So with OIC in Cambodia, it's one of about five or six charities that I know of in the world. And the Of course, there are probably more. I just haven't heard of them. But one of very few charities, let's say, that actually has an intentional exit strategy that will say by a defined date, we won't exist in this country anymore and we'll have put the country on a path to solve the problem for themselves. And that is such a challenging idea for so many charities and so many charity founders and so many country directors that if you have this stance, a a small portion of people really love it and will follow you and get it. Some will maybe have their uh, concept of helping and doing good changed, but the vast majority will ostracize you. And so funnily enough, when you do a talk, a TEDx talk about charities needing to make themselves redundant, you don't 
get a lot of invites to charity conferences. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm okay with that. I'm okay. It saved a lot of time. (laughs) Um, But that's that's that feeling of um, maybe being isolated and being one of very few who feels very strongly about that and has lived it, let alone talked about it, that's also very challenging. I can understand and I and I think this theme for me has been coming up a lot in the discussions I've been having in this podcast but also more broadly within my work is there's this growing I guess recognition uh, amongst people particularly in the international development sector where people come into this career and they want to help and they have the best of intentions and they're young and naive and, you know, just like you and I were and, and, you know, with lots of big ideas and you go into the sector and you don't necessarily come in with an understanding that, hey, we are coming in to solve, effectively solve the problems caused by colonial structures yet we are operating from within a colonial structure and our mere presence here is perpetuating that colonial structure. And to acknowledge that can kind of blow people's minds open a little bit, but then to actually think about, well, how do I remove myself from this this space and still enable the provision, and I'm using that in a very top-down way, the provision of services being provided to these people who need them, you know, and I'm using those words in, in a very intentional way. And I think that can be very hard for a lot of people to get their heads around and leads into what you were saying about charity being redundant. And there needs to be a complete shift in mindset that is very hard for people to start to approach when they've built their entire career around it. Why do you think it is so hard apart from the obvious? I think it comes back into identity and ego and those reputational gains that we touched on at the start. There's a lot of positive feedback that comes from your family, your community, your church, your organization, whatever it is that is is propping you up and even the people that you are so-called helping. And so to be the kind of person that can dismantle that within yourself and then actively speak up about it is really tough. Yeah, I think that's really true. And and I think also we, another thing we've touched on in today's talk is about the concept of where you fit in as context. And we don't in my, well, we didn't when I went to school, teach history very well in my school at all. And that colonialism that you mentioned I think that would be more useful to understand that as context in my development studies um, study, as opposed to learning what the, at that time, the Millennium Development Goals were, or, you know, how the UN was structured. I think that's not so relevant. What I want to know is how does this very small piece of work that we're doing fit into a wider system that sits around it? And um, of course, there's systems thinking as a concept, which is being taught very widely now and makes a lot of sense. But it's hard to understand the system if you don't understand history and you don't understand um, how history has repeated itself and how humans have maintained those power structures, which are the things that we've, we should be trying to dismantle or disrupt at least. It's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of somebody in particular that has been your greatest influence in doing good? 
I have all the usual stereotypes like Gandhi and MLK, but I think for me the most influential people to influence my way of doing good are my parents. I really do think it comes from that. So they, particularly my father, came from a very poor background and had, I believe, $200 when he arrived in Australia in the early 70s and then worked very hard for his family to eventually be comfortable. And me being the youngest of three children as well, we weren't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but we were certainly more comfortable than when my eldest brother was at the same age. So then if you go even further back, my family uh, originally migrating from China to Malaysia during a time of famine. So I'm the product of generations of sacrifice and then my life has been a huge amount of privilege, really. So I think the things that I've learned from them are really about that that thing about being aware of where you sit within the bigger picture, the value of hard work and the value of not complaining and not sweating the small stuff and really the determination to do good and to challenge and be very clear about what it is that you believe when you know what that is, of course, but also to not let other people push you around. So I I don't intend to be provocative. That's not my... Um, that's not my motivation, but certainly some things are going to provoke reactions amongst people. And I think there's a certain strength that's required to do that of anyone who's provocative or says ideas that are trying to shift the concept of of anything, be they concepts of um, feminism or racism or whatever. So in order to do that, that strength's got to come from somewhere. And I really have to credit my parents for that because that's not a very typical Chinese trait, I will say. It's Chinese people historically, if you think about Confucianism, is about acceptance and Buddhism is about tolerance and acceptance. And so it's very unusual, I think, to have parents that are fairly forthright with their opinions and say, you know, you should have an opinion, make sure you voice it, make sure you can back it up. I love that. Now for a philosophical question, and this one's courtesy of uh, philosopher Kwame Apaya. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? Oh, well, climate change is an, is an obvious one. And, you know, I don't work in that sector, but it's so evident that we have a time imperative to do something drastic. And yet it seems very challenging for global leaders to do that. But I would say anything that relates to what we've been discussing about power shift and power dynamics changing, I really think that future generations will wonder why certain things took so long. Of course, we should notice and observe that a lot of things have shifted very quickly, but uh, there are some things that still haven't shifted. So one example, of course, in Australia is the recognition of Indigenous cultures and peoples that go beyond tokenism. I think that will be something that future generations will look at and go, why did it take so long? And it has such a huge knock-on effect for everything else. I mean, in that article that I wrote for Pro Bono News that you talked about, I talked a little bit about my own experience of racism in the social sector. And, you know, people in Australia, there's a big debate about is it a racist country or not? But I don't know if we're the best people to answer that. I think the best people are usually those who come from overseas and don't have a bias in it. And when you have Europeans or people from North America coming to Australia and saying, wow, this is a racist country, that to me rings alarm bells, right? So our issue, I believe, is that until we actually start to recognise true Indigenous ownership of land and begin with that 
everything else, which of course is race-based on top of that or class-based or culture-based, won't yet be properly addressed. It's like the foundation at the bottom of this building. We're trying to build on top of this, but we haven't actually got this good foundational understanding of the First Nations people. Absolutely. I interviewed uh, Sarah Sheridan from Clothing the Gap recently, and we talked about, you know, that something as simple as changing the date of the 26th of January can't even be done, you know, and, and how mind blowing is that, that some just one day can't be shifted that would mean so much to a very large group of people and would change so little for anyone else. And it's funny because, you know, I talk to my children who are eight and 10 about that and it's mind blowing for them. They cannot understand why you wouldn't just change a date. And and so I think you're right. It, it is something that they're going to look back on and think, well, why was that so hard? That's a good sign for the future about your children. And I guess that's something that adults could learn from that uh, things that we find very challenging to approach it with a child's mindset and be more along the lines of, yeah, of course we can. It's not that hard. But I think what you just said is very much like that example of the male and the panel, the mantle, is it's not a big deal to a man to not sit on a panel, but potentially for a woman who doesn't usually get asked because the panels are usually filled with men, it can be a big deal. So And it ties in really nicely to our discussion about where do we fit in this bigger community and our context. You know, it's it's not about us as individuals. It's about as a society, how do we thrive together? And if it's no big deal for me to do something, but it could be a big deal for even a small minority of people, such as Indigenous Australians, I don't see why this is um, something to be discussed. We should just go ahead and do it. Absolutely. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I guess it would be something along the lines of understanding where you fit into the bigger picture. Yeah, I think that is and ties in nicely to what we've been discussing, but understand that, you know, it's like that idea of no man is an island. You're not alone in this journey and maybe even you're not all that special. You're not all that different to everybody else. And uh, the interconnected nature of human beings and animals and plants and, and the land, we're all interconnected in some way. And I think that's something that COVID has taught us, right? We thought we were quite disconnected until <laughs> a cough or a sneeze could be enough to connect us. So that would help a lot of people who feel isolated or feel like there's a lot of pressure on them to know that other people are struggling with the same thing. But it might also help with some of the things that we've discussed to understand that it's not just about you and your ego and about needing to feel good about doing good. It's about how do you contribute to the bigger picture? Where where is your favourite place on earth? I don't think it's a physical place. I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I think it's a place where, and it could be a lot of different places, but I think it's a place where I can feel present and not distracted and connected. So I guess that usually is a place in nature. And uh, this weekend I'll be going camping and I'm sure we won't have any phone reception, which is great. And I'll feel very different afterwards. It's been a long time coming this year because of COVID. But uh, I I think that that place is really important to be at and to revisit. And it doesn't have to be one specific place. You're not the only one that uh, that cheats on that question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
What book are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a book by Peter Singer, one of your previous guests, um, called The Most Good You Can Do, I think it's called. And it has picked up a bit. I've, I've really enjoyed the middle section of this book. And it's challenged a few things that I have thought about, but it's about the idea of effective altruism and how do we do the most good with the limited resources that we have, including time and money. Mm, yes, very, very interesting book. And you're right, lots of challenging concepts. What about podcasts? Do you listen to them? I don't listen to a lot apart from yours, obviously, Lee. Subscribe <laughs> and listen to every single minute of every episode. I, I, the only podcast that I listen to semi-regularly, and even then it's not that regular because I don't really have a space in my life for podcasts because I cycle to work, etc. is uh, Conan O'Brien's. Uh, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And I find it not only hilarious but very insightful when he interviews uh, top performers about their insights into what they think and even the, the questioning or am I really funny after doing this for 25, 30 years, you know, that if they're thinking that, then for us at our stage of life and career, it's really comforting to know that um, it's never a question of being all that comfortable, but actually not being comfortable is what drives them and makes them really great. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Where, where can people find out more about you and all the various and amazing things that you do? So my website is now back up and running after being dead in the water for a good year or so, which is great. Had time to fix it after COVID um, settled down a bit. And that's my name, weyo.com, W-E-H-Y-E-O-H.com. And then umbo, umbo.com.au is what we're working on now, the social enterprise connecting kids in rural Australia with access to healthcare online. And then there's OIC Cambodia, uh, OIC, the letters, cambodiathecountry.org. And then lastly, um, look up on YouTube the TEDx talk that I did with just my name and TEDx at the end, you'll find it. Wonderful. I want to thank you so much for giving me your time today and for exploring these concepts and ideas and thoughts with me. I always love our conversations and they don't happen often enough. And I am so glad we got to capture this one uh, on audio and get to share it with the world. Yeah, me too, Lee. I, again, I really appreciate the conversations. They're always challenging and I appreciate your candidness and open-mindedness and the fact that we want to explore this together. So it's been lots of fun. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to The Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of The Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.